Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global communities they are creating, the generations that are using and investing in them, and the challenges faced by the nations that are seeking to regulate them. The content of this program is not to be taken as investment advice. The opinions expressed in the program by the host and the guests are their personal opinions only. Remember, feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and my co-host is Nitin Gower, Managing Director of State Street Digital Assets. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome along to another episode of Beyond Bitcoin. My name is Derek Graham, and I'm here with my friend and colleague, Nitin Gower. Hey, Nitin. Hey, Derek. Glad to be here. Looking forward to another, another exciting, or should I call it exciting week, but good to be here. There's always an exciting week. In fact, when there isn't, we're stunned. There was once a week that was quiet. That's true. We didn't have anything years. going on that week. <laughs> and we're all sort of scratching our head going, what does this mean? However, this week we've seen, of course, the SEC officially sue Binance, alleging that the securities law was breached, wrapped around the area of commingling customers' funds. And we've seen similar things that this commingling customer funds along with the entrepreneurs involved of CZ. We saw similar things with FTX, Celsius and Three Arrows. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Meanwhile, of course, Coinbase has filed a writ of man mandamus asking the SEC for clarity around, you know, establishing their kind of larger position as, a, as an exchange. And right at the same time, they're rapidly expanding overseas. So they are attending to business at home but expanding overseas in different nations. I think yeah. one of the major areas is Dubai, of course. Grayscale has in the past been suing the SEC, arguing that they want a, a spot ETF versus a futures ETF. You know, what this is causing is sort of a reduction in volume of market trade too, because, because this is about not knowing clarity on regulations. So we've seen Bitcoin's price as of this morning dropped down to $25,763. It's nearly a 5% drop. ETH has dropped yep. down to $1,812. It's a 4.14% drop. And Binance has dropped 9.18%, which you'd expect such a substantial drop with the confirmation of the suit on, on the way. But Nitin, over to you to do the numbers. Yeah, let's do the numbers. And I think, Derek, we should begin to look at the numbers. And I should always look at the numbers, look at the impact of these things. And it's not just about the narrative. So the total crypto market cap as of this morning is 1.13 trillion. Bitcoin market cap significantly down to 496 plus billion dollars. Ethereum market cap is 216 plus billion dollars. ETH to BTC ratio, which I have actually tracked this in the past 12 years, or I rather I would say nine plus years because it took ETH a while to get to the point is 0.07, which I thought is always interesting because it keeps in the rate of, in, in, in the similar sort of theme, looking into DeFi TVL, which tells me the economic activity in the crypto ecosystem by itself is about 77.17 billion. So a massive drop of mm -hmm. 20 plus billion from a past few weeks from that perspective. And of course, when all this is happening and we've debated the role of stable coins and fiat, both in terms of liquidity going in and liquidity leaving the system, which is Federal Reserve balance sheet, it's about $8.38 trillion, which is different from the national debt, which is hovering around $31 trillion. As you all may have seen, 
the entire debate in Congress to lift the debt ceiling, which is a mandate that Congress has to go through. So I think these numbers are indicative of the markets, indicative of all the things that you described, both in terms of the economic activity, but also in terms of the lawsuits and SEC sort of, you know, tromping down the, the, the crypto ecosystem. I remember when DeFi's TVL, that's total value locked, was sitting yeah. at well north of 120 billion. Now it's sitting at 77 billion. It's intriguing that the fear and greed audience index is actually sitting at 53, meaning yeah. neutral. So amongst all of this attack on the industry, the fear and greed index is sitting at neutral. It's not sitting at fear, it's actually sitting at neutral. So the, the industry is sort of sitting back there maybe and watching this going watching. wash through. Yeah. Absolutely. And I th also think there's there's a dual element to it, right? Until two days back, then that was a much higher, the feed and greed index was more towards 60 something. And that's because the fact that we had this debt ceiling debacle and Circle was in this process of offloading the treasury bills, which was one of the most secure sort of assets at hand. And of course, there was inflationary sort of pressures. Some of that is over. Fundamentals still remain. And I think with this lawsuit and debt ceiling away, you begin to see the neutrality come back. You say, hey, we'll watch and see what's going on here because any of these things can have a massive impact. I think we should spend some time today, Derek, in talking about, I'm sure there's enough written about the SEC on Binance, which we're expecting. There's enough articles in Reuters. Mm. Not all of them were accurate and they were just very biased, but nonetheless, we should discuss the impact of what this means to the broader ecosystem. Very much so. Now, it's interesting during the debt ceiling negotiations, I noticed that the two parties ended up negotiating out any proposal to tax Bitcoin mining. That was actually interesting. And I think they took out a lot of these things. So it was actually, to me, a very boring resolution where they didn't really do anything meaningful. They just postponed the kick, kick the can down the road to say, let's not worry about this till January of 2025, where if we have elections coming up in a, in a, you know, in a year or so for the next presidential election, no one will deal with this anymore. The problem doesn't go away. There's still debt, there's still interest payments, there's still you know, the balance sheet problem, Federal Reserve paying the interest with the, with the interest rates as high as they are. And there was not any massive cuts either. So there's still high level of spending, there's still, a lot of entitlement programs not being touched because it's not a very politically you know you know popular thing to do mm. so i just wonder like what have you really solved you just push the can down the road to say okay let's not worry about it for now we will deal with it later until then you have pretty much a, a carte blanche on as much you want to borrow and spend in the system and at some point and there will be a lot of economists who've been talking about this. So I don't, I, I don't know what the impact of that on the long run. I'm not an economist per se, but I look at these numbers a lot as we ha all have been looking to say, you know, they do need to, and this is again, as a history of, as a student of, of history of economics, as I have begun to learn and understand the systems around us, it's never a good thing to have massive debts because then you begin to have fractured societies and impact of money reduces over time, I think. And the, the, the sort of volume of money, the flow of money, the speed of money, yeah is also you know slowing we're, we're seeing you know le less money spent on a rapid basis less money investment reduced in reduced levels of liquidity this impacts this realm of digital assets because it's impacting available money to build and speculate within a marketplace 
So the intriguing thing I've always looked at is people have said, you know, when you look at an economy, you just should think about your household debt. Do you have more income than you do have outgoing expenditures? Now, yes, I understand that. That's a very easy way of thinking about it. But the US dollar and the US is a reserve currency. So it's different to maybe another currency like the Australian currency that's got a, you know, it's 2% of the world's currency or volume. So it is intriguing that the, the fact that the US dollar is a reserve, global reserve currency is terribly important for America to try and maintain that position if it's going to be the printer of large volumes of money and the creator of debt. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, look, two things on this slide. And I think emergence of digital asset to me provides a competing value proposition to US dollar as something that's resilient, something actually is able to store off value. And so it is, and that's why I think the terms that have been coined, you know, Operation Choke Point 2.0, which was again, banking going against it, and you have all the regulators doing their job to reduce the uptake of cryptocurrencies. And I think this particular lawsuit that you have seen with Binance, which has been brewing for quite some time, so it's not something new. Mm. But the what does it mean for larger market is it helps, it basically puts all the exchanges on the alerts in absence of regulatory clarity, as we've discussed before, mm-hmm. and other venues, trading firms who are dealing with these assets on behalf of crypto institutional investors. There's limited trading and this questionable status of crypto assets here. So 10 here, 10 there, as you know, Today, the coins that was questioned in Binance lawsuit were BNB tokens. That's obvious. There's BUSD, Solana, Cardano, Polygon, Filecoin, Cosmos, Sand, Decentraland, which is Mana, Algorand, Axie Infinity, and Cody. So you have all these. So 10 here, 10 there. There were a few other assumptions made on assets. Many of them actually represent about 30 to 40% of market, barring the Bitcoin and Ether ecosystem. Some of these represents the lion's share of the volume of the market, which bring the liquidity in the system and actually are providing mm-hmm. utility value of it. So the long-term attack on this, not just from stopping the banking rail, which is the, the stable coins and the liquidity moving in from banking system into crypto ecosystem, as we've discussed before, and by labeling them securities, suddenly puts others at alert. So suddenly now you'll see the value volume drop and increase in volatility, of course, and that has negative impact on the entire market in general, only because you have some indirect, what they call fourth party risks of entities dealing with these crypto agencies, with, which may be at the risk of, of being impacted as well. And it's not just a US problem because of the reserve status of anybody dealing with US dollar or anybody dealing with any of these systems remotely may be impacted. And you'll begin to see that drop ripple, have a ripple effect, no pun intended, <laughs> with, the, with the ripple lawsuit, you know, with the SEC. But that actually has a big impact. And that, that's why I look at the numbers there. What is the impact of these mm-hmm. on the broader industry besides the Bitcoin and Ethereum, them being the staples as we have seen. And I think it's generally not good for the industry in general from volatility, but also from valuation perspective. So yeah. I think it, it's doing, it, the OCP 2.0 is, is working with banking, stopping the liquidity flow into this and all these sort of legal framing. And it'll be interesting to see how the crypto industry recovers from this uh, at a technology level. A lot of the analysts are looking at the 200 moving day average at the moment for Bitcoin, which is sitting at about 25,700 by memory, expecting that if, if it's able to stay above that, it's very solid for its future expectations. If it drops below that, we may see Bitcoin drop further. 
it's, it, it'll be interesting to see how that progresses, just another indicator. But this week, you've spent some time in Philadelphia actually sitting on the panel of the Official Monetary Authority and Financial Institutions Forum, which is an independent think tank for central banking, economic policy, and public investment. Yeah. Sort of a, a neutral platform around best practice for world and public sector exchanges. It is the establishment, but it's the establishment that thinks about things, isn't it? How do you think your, your colleagues in that realm were looking at the space? Are they starting to become more focused on opportunity than threat, or is it still a divided camp, Nitin? So I think, so one, I was actually Federal Reserve in Philadelphia, and, and as you have mentioned, OMFIF was another agency that actually did organize the whole thing, and the entire theme was the future of financial stability and monetary policy. And one, it was very enriching experience to meet some really, really smart people, and you had a combination of the policymakers, you had our cohorts, again, from, the, from, from various big, large, very large financial institutions, you had central bankers, you have chief economists, and it was a combination of all these entities coming together to understand where this is heading. And the first day was all about interest rates and impact of that and impact of monetary policies. And the debate was around, you know, should the central banks be involved in ESG agenda? And, and there was some discussion through Fay, let central bank being focused on two things, which is the mandate of central banks, the the since since you know since the origination, which is jobs and inflation, that they should focus on these two areas that keeps the economy healthy by controlling the money supply and and they do that by interest rates and as we have seen in the, in the you know in the recent past the second day what was interesting was around the impact of digital asset on financial stability and many of us who are from i would say you know technology areas in terms of trying to help and understand the impact of digital asset both in terms of supply and velocity and velocity is an important equation in flow of money in the entire economic system as i've learned and the question at the time was, can digital asset help? And when I say digital asset, I'm not only including the crypto assets and the impact of that, but also the CBDC and stable coins, which are essentially mm -hmm. payment instruments of sorts. So a few concerns, questions they had was, why blockchain, why token on the existing payment systems good enough? What is the real friction that we need to do? And why are blockchain systems better besides all the things that we've heard with FTX and then eventually most recently with what they're calling FTX 2.0 with the CZ or Binance sort of lawsuit. And so a lot of the conversations were around that piece. And I would say this, that we did discuss at a very pragmatic level. Uh, and it was more of a debate to say that, you know, do technology itself is deflationary, growth is deflationary. And over time, it has the potential to, to help central bank and the monetary policy for two reasons. One is it modernizes the payment system, which means it gives them better control on ability for them to be able to move money and this is in context of CBDC and stable coins. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, I think, Derek, which was sort of amiss, and there was a really interesting conversation, was around data. So most of these policymakers look at data and they implement these policies. And there's a data which you, they get from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and BIS and various agencies that do the service and get the data. And they have some economic data that gets computed and they make a decision. They advise them to the, to the central bank presidents and they eventually go to an FOMC meeting every 45 days. And there's a lag period between the data they collect, the analysis they do, by the time it goes to the policymakers and by the time they implement the policy, there's already a 45 plus day delay in that theming. And my question to them was, if we can give you real time data of utility and flow of money, will that help you make better decisions? And that was a super interesting conversation that we had. So to me, it was like one of those things where 
we're intellectually sitting down together uh, and discussing as adults and as a different lens from the other regulatory conversation we've had in the past. There's a different lens to say, there's a really smart people, many economists, many central bankers, policymakers, technologists coming together. Also a lot of wine being drunk and things get even more interesting after that, those, those conversations. So I think it was, it was fun. It was really good. I really enjoyed the two days that I spent in Philadelphia. And so how do you feel about the, the general consensus of the bankers, the economists, the regulators around that? Do you think they're not interested in cryptocurrencies? Do they think they're a threat? Do you think they're an opportunity? What are their general thoughts? So I think it was very limited. I don't think they spend enough time on crypto at all. They spend time on the technology, which is blockchain and DLT and CBDC. And, and so their focus was largely payment systems as opposed to the impact of Bitcoin or the impact of, you know, mm. these uh, neutral technology-led cryptocurrencies per se. And I think if you look at the, the thematic conversations around the mandate of central banks, they cannot achieve that mandate for things they cannot control. So for example, the money supply and the interest rates, that gives them a lot of these tools that allows them to be able to address their mandate of jobs creation by the availability of money and credit versus the, the interest rates or, or the money supply that they have to do, which is in terms of inflationary power. Of the, and that, those are the, some of the tools that they, they have at hand, which again, they really have no control on any of the Bitcoin or Ethereum because they're technology led. And that's the conversation we had is if, if these currencies provide a competing avenue to the US dollar, mm. does that not make you want to work harder to preserve the value and the prowess of US dollar that we have seen in the last four decades. And I think there was again, a pragmatic conversation to say, hey, the world is changing, should we change with it? Both in terms of addressing the velocity and speed of transactions that need to happen, the demographic shift that's happening with the, the, the newer you know, age who are used to more digital transactions. So the relevance of cash and relevance of cash equivalent and what is really fungible here so there was a lot of these conversations which goes back, which dates back to hundreds of years of origination of money from that perspective. So it is centered around fiat and money and what is money and what's fungible instruments and what's, they didn't cover the entirety. Also, we didn't have that kind of time and to, mm. to cover those, but it's super interesting, I would say. Very intellectually stimulating conversations. That's fascinating. And, and Nitin, one of the things that is always difficult with new technology coming is that sometimes it's the incumbents that are determining whether the new technology is welcome. Other times they don't have that control, but sometimes they do. And I sort of made a comment to you the other day that, that you know, when you've got a very much an older, very skilled and people with a great deal of history and knowledge creating the future regulations, it's challenging because I would argue they're two generations away from the future, the future being the kids in their late teens, the young adults in their 20s, and the early adopters in their 30s. And these guys are in their 50s, 60s and 70s that are often determining the regulation. Do you think that's going to be culturally challenging for them? So not to, at the bottom of not being an, an ageist, I think there has to be a blend for two reasons. One is a lot of folks, and I'm, I'm one of them, getting there, Derek. We all are getting there every day that passes by. But there's an element of history, which is such an important part of where we're going, 
to know where we're coming from. And these older policymakers, and I'm saying this with, with all the positive and, and with gratitude, they have seen this space over and over again. They've seen evolution of new technologies that change the economies. They've seen dot-com era and they've seen what actually happens to money supply and how much economy, which US has benefited tremendously in mm. massive economic growth that it still enjoys today because of dot-com era and what, what happened with the internet. So I think there's, you know, there is this massive potential for them to understand. So I, I, I respect the history. But at the same time, I think we need to understand where the puck is going, which is what the next generation, my kid, my son decides in where he wants to deal with, how do he wants to deal banking, regardless of how we want to define banking to be. So if he doesn't see the value in a low percentage, you know, fractional reserve type banking, because he, he really cares about mobile wallets and he's okay with having money in Venmo and having all these different other, like, you know, mobile apps that give him investment options. I don't think he really cares so much about it as long as it's dealing with his modality of how he interfaces with the world. If that happens to be digital, he'll prefer digital form of payments, digital form of money, digital form of investments. So I think the conversation should be around modalities and not make a religious debate about digital assets and everything else. And the reason why all these assets are flourishing is because of there's obviously a gap in the system that people are trying to, barring some speculation and some greed that you see in every industry, not just crypto per se. And so I think that's the conversation. If you look at this week's announcement, Derek, significant for the first time in decades, Apple announced their Vision Pro headset. And I've written about this extensively in my, you know, Web3 and metaversical sense, what metaverse is. I recently published a paper on this topic too, which looks into what they call spatial computing and spatial computing, if you break the words down, is exactly what we've been envisioning, that you have a device that gives you an interface, the digital interface, exactly what we've been talking with my kid, to, to interact with the gaming ecosystem, to interact and using his biometrics to give him identity and that identity becomes an avatar. The avatar interfaces with these different ecosystems, carries all the things it values, whether it's gaming artifacts and in future converting the gaming artifacts. So I see this, and we've been envisioning this for the longest time, including what Apple, I mean, what Facebook had, which is a little bit more substandard product than $3,500, which is quite pricey as a, as a, but if this becomes sort of the entry point into the, and more importantly, it's not just the hardware. They have opened a massive developer ecosystem because this was announced at the worldwide developer conference. They opened a massive developer ecosystem for them to develop applications on their platform. So they still want to be able to capitalize on this massive economic potential and I see innovation there, Derek. It's not Ooh. so much as Apple. Apple facilitating a platform, allowing developers to create applications, to create these avenues to take your identity, take your avatar. And I'm sure there'll be other crypto agencies who'll use that identity to be able to assign your tokens to your wallet. And eventually there'll be a plugin from your identity wallets. I see this begin to take shape. Maybe not today, maybe 10 years from now, but it's taking shape. And at that point, my son, who may be a gamer and he who is wearing these headsets, may choose to use cryptocurrencies because it's convenient and it's apt. It's native to that ecosystem, which US dollar may not be. At that point, it's very hard to control that because the cats, you know, you can't put the, the toothpaste back in the tube, as as the saying goes, and you can't put the, you know, the genies out of the bottle. You can't put it put it back in the bottle. And you simply have to embrace, adopt, and adapt and move forward. So Nitin, 10 years away, that's like 90 years away. Do you really think it'll be that long? 
I mean, we're talking about a realm here where, I mean, I, I'm ready to get a pair of these glasses. I think it's fabulous. <laughs> because really you can fabulous. afford it, Derek. <laughs> well, I'm because hoping you'll come out at a lesser rate than what they're arguing as being the first one out. You know, they're suggesting that within 12 months that it'll be down to 499 US dollars or there'll be a version of that. <laughs> so that would be superb. You can, I mean, when you look at a pair of glasses, they can cost five and six hundred, seven hundred dollars for a pair yeah, of prescription sure. glasses, you know, and you can actually put I mean, prescriptions in the glasses, which is interesting. So you can I've got to, to show you that. something, Derek, uh, for the audience too. I've yes. been bought in this game for a long time. You remember what this is? Oh, that's the oh, Google glasses. That's a Google. I still have it as, as wow. I, used to, I bought this and it's super expensive. They don't exist. And I just bought it to experiment with it. Super clunky, doesn't have enough power, but they were able, they were pretty good. I mean, I was able to use them in my, and, and they were had interesting term. They had glass holes because they didn't like people wearing because you know, it's privacy invasion. You could take pictures by simply a wink or you could record stuff. It was quite invasive. And I just want to experiment that. I still have it as, and I didn't sell it because I just want to have an art piece of history. Yeah. I'm going up the antique value, Derek. At some point, it becomes very antique, more valuable than they are today, for instance. No one's going to pay anything for that. But <laughs> uh, it was 1500 bucks back in the day, which was expensive. Wow. This is about a decade ago, whatever, or a little longer than that. And I still got it to experiment with, with where things were. But yeah, I think, you know, I, I learned a lot from that process, of course. But I will say this, Derek, the reason why I say 10 years is because of ubiquity, that all these have to settle down, but I think there'll be an inflection point when we no longer have these debates. We have enough infrastructure, we have enough investments, we have enough regulatory clarity, and the Vision Pro headsets becomes affordable to a kid in Uganda, a kid in the Philippines, a kid in India, and a kid in the US. And, and that's, where, that's, the, that's why I'm giving you 10 years for this to evolve. And, and at least uh, hopefully by the time Gary Gensel retires, so we open up. Uh... <laughs> so, so maybe a little bit sooner than 10 years for him. So, so let's look at this for a moment because we're talking future and we've been talking the past and, and legacy technology, legacy know-how, legacy philosophy earlier on. And so now we're talking about, you know, the, the, the ability to have a metaverse or an augmented environment that's put in front of you or a virtual environment, depending on your settings. And so the Apple headset sits on your, in your, on your face and you turn around and you say, I'm going to use artificial intelligence. I want, a, I want a question answered, chat GPT, and give me the information regarding the history of this building in front of me. And it will be able to identify the building, provide a history of that building sitting in front of you. Like they're like virtual tours. Or tell me who's on the fifth floor of this building because I need to have yeah. an appointment there. And, and then, you know, it turns around and says, well, I, I need to be able to get some public transport from here to here, pay it for me. And this sort of area of the confluence of blockchain payment systems, artificial intelligence, and then of course, web 3.0, like I, I have, I have three terabytes on my phone. Now I only need half a terabyte, please provide yeah. the rest of it for file storage and my phone computational ability is this, please provide 50% of it for computational ability. So we see edge computing occurring and we see edge file storage systems occurring and generate me an income from that. All of this can happen through interfaces as you walk along and discuss. It'll be quite extraordinary. I, I know because you know I'm from the world of aviation prior to this. Yeah, um, exactly. We, we built through a company called Quickstep and we still do all the underbelly panels for the joint strike fighter 
because we had advanced composite technology know-how, and that's the most advanced composite technology there is in the world. And so, so we still do that, and that's a decades-long program. What's intriguing is that the helmet that the fellow wears cost 250,000 pounds when I saw the calculation on it. So what's that? It's about, it's about let's say it's close to half a million dollars. And so he sits there with a helmet sitting in there. Well, it's a virtual helmet. He can look through the wings and through the fuselage and all around him as if there's no aeroplane around him if he wants to be able to see things. And at wow. the same time, he coordinates an area of radar visibility from both his jet, from ground base equipment, and also from the ocean, um, from sea base equipment, giving him this enormous area where he can see everything in. Well, for the first time, he's doing all of that through artificial intelligence and through augmented reality sitting in front of him as he's flying. So typical of these sort of things, that quarter of a million pound set of headsets that he's got there or helmet that he's got there, ultimately will probably be costing $500. Yeah. And no, no, that absolutely. kind of technology capability will be in, not that we'll be using it for spatial analysis and war or defense, but it'll be in. And I, I often ask myself the question, how would you do all of that with traditional banking systems in as, as the only payment rails? Surely it's got to go to an, an area of blockchain where you'll see microtransactions are occurring. True. And, and like this to me, we discussed a little briefly last time too, is, you know, when you have to move money and I'll give an example, I bought something for my parents back home in India and I had to go through at least six attempts for using my credit card because India is designated as a high fraud country. And they have this, even in spite of having the bi-directional presence and all tools at our disposal to make sure it's Nitin who's making this transaction because I have a mobile device, I have the app. I'm doing all this in the same app with the same identifiers and the secret sort of pen and everything else. It's still decline all the transactions. And at that point, you're just wondering that, hey, if I had tokenized asset, then I don't have to worry about approvals. I could have just sent those tokenized assets to the platform and bought a few things. So that's a friction to me, right? Those are small things. And if I'm looking at aiming to achieve with what you have just described from Vision, a sort of pro headset and eventually some, some you know, morphed advanced version of it, then I can take my NFTs, walk into the museum, have the entire museum tour loaded up to my device without actually talking to anyone and do other things that I, that I otherwise would have to go through steps and send mine, pay for tickets and everything else. Mm. That's quality of life. We are improving every aspect of how we live as human beings. And, and to me, I, I, I like that. I, I would like to focus on those areas of improving our lives mm. for, you know, for, for betterment of the world, but also our quality of life because we can spend more time doing other things we love. Mm. Me too, Nitin. So what an interesting journey then. So we're still looking at regulation. We're looking at the SEC taking preemptive action. We're looking at the industry, banking industry, determining where its future is going to be and where the opportunities are going to be. And at the same time, we've had an opportunity to turn around and say, yes, but just let's remind ourselves what this future is going to look like with augmented reality, virtual reality, digital assets, edge computing, and how that's going to impact our lifetime. Fascinating journey. Thanks again, Nitin. Look forward to Thank seeing you. you next week. And let's see what the week brings us this week. I hope it's boring, Derek. 
I opened for it. <laughs> Good chatting. Oh with my you gosh, me too. Next week. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. See you then. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our weekly conversation. If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics, please contact Nitin Gower or myself on the emails displayed here or via our LinkedIn profiles. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Stay well, inquisitive, and engaged. See you next week.